0: are listening to a podcast from The National. Tomorrow, 2021, that's what the UAE is calling its latest economic initiative, and it's just part of the country's larger plans announced in a summer full of reforms. We'll discuss these reforms, and later in the episode, we will look at the latest from Idlib, where the conflict in Syria has swung heavily in President Bashar al-Assad's favour. This is Beyond the Headlines. I'm Mina al-Durubi. Sheikh Mohammed bin Zayed, Crown Prince of Abu Dhabi, announced the Tomorrow 2021 plan this week. It includes 50 initiatives to spur growth in areas such as investment, job creation and improving the overall quality of life in the Emirate. The 50 billion dirham initiative is part of a larger vision for the country's post-oil future. Rory Reynolds, the National's news editor, joined us in our Abu Dhabi studio. He explained tomorrow, 2021, as well as some of the other reforms the UAE is undertaking.
1: So this week uh, was the culmination of what we're calling a, a summer of reform, which was the news that um, 50 billion dirhams will be ejected into local Abu Dhabi economy in the next three years. 20 billion of that um, as of January 2019. And this is the latest in a series of announcements that we've had about the, the, the sort of the plan for the future as um, Abu Dhabi and the UAE looks at uh, a future where uh, less of its income will be reliant on oil and gas. We're starting to see a a much clearer picture of what it will look like.
0: This isn't the only announcement that was made. The introduction of a visa for retirees was also announced uh, this week. Who's going to be eligible and what is the plan?
1: The country's effectively liberalising the visa process, which means making it easier for people to come here Um, and also making it a more attractive place to stay for a longer time. So some of the announcements we've heard recently are that um, uh, people with the right sort of skills, scientists, engineers and doctors, will be able to stay for longer, as many as 10 years. And the news that we had this week from the cabinet that was um, confirmed and and ready to go ahead is that um, retirees, people aged um, at least 55 or older, will have the chance to apply for a five-year visa, uh, which is longer than anything that you're expats would be eligible for at the moment and the significance is is that the the government is looking to encourage people particularly property owners and business owners to stay longer to invest in the place to call this place home for for uh, you know into their 50s and 60s as it were and that that kind of comes back to this overall plan that this is a this country is a long term prospect and and not just somewhere where perhaps people would come for two years save their money send it all home and and then move on
0: and I guess this plan would make it easier for foreign companies to come to the UAE, invest here and I guess bring individuals that they need for a longer period of time.
1: Yeah, so the government's been quite upfront in saying that um, this is a competitive economy. It, you know, it is competing on the world stage with, with other economies and they're trying to encourage the um, the sort of the brightest and best to come and work here and live here, invest here, educate their children here and their ch- children graduate and go into to work in um, industry here. So, so this is all part of making the country, um, you know, a long-term prospect, uh, and also looking at, um, you know, the broader theme, which is what happens after the oil, uh, not necessarily after the, after the oil runs out, which may not be for, for several decades, but but as oil becomes less less of the single source of income or less as the main source of income for the country, and, and this is kind of all plays into the broader plan that the fifty billion stimulus and also the liberalized visa regulation.
0: And going back on your point, um, I mean, like you said, there's been a lot of initiatives announced since not just this week, but since a few months ago, um, especially in getting the public and private sector to sort of work together and to create new jobs uh, and to reduce the cost of running a business here in the UAE. What sectors are being targeted exactly?
1: So for our, our main front page story today, we spoke to uh, a series of leading Emirati businessmen about their, how they see this stimulus package, this 50 billion, uh, dirhams um, affecting the economy, and they were they, they welcomed it. They were they were excited to see about what the impact would be, but they were quite realistic about the challenges as well. They spoke about um, expats returning home um, for economic reasons and for job losses, and they also talked about um, a, a sort of a deadlock in the in the words of one um, in the construction industry. And so, um, this money that will be injected into the public sector um, will be used to to benefit the, the whole economy. So when the public sector spends uh, the uh, small businesses benefit, the private sector benefits, um, they win contracts, they win um, construction, they hire more workers, those workers fill uh, accommodation fill apartments and, and so on. so so we see that the money will be spent in the public sector, but it will have the intention is by the government that it will have a much broader effect on the overall economy. Um, I mean in addition to that, behind the headline of 50, 50 billion dirhams. Um the Crown prince of Abu Dhabi spoke uh, yesterday on twitter about the um the need to invest in technology startup companies um the, the sort of companies that will come up with the um the technology of the future the mobile applications of the future the um sort of research and development countries of the future and they also spoke about um encouraging the um education sort of industry the um in ensuring that uh, young Emiratis and and uh, residents alike are being Educated to high standards and are going on to, kind of, you know, the knowledge sort of high high end jobs, technology jobs, and what's called the knowledge economy. Um, you know, away from sort of government links jobs and um, away from very traditional jobs. So you can expect to see that money going in to the public sector, but it having a benefit for, say, construction, education, technology, all of the things that the the UAE really finds itself competing with other countries against in this global economy.
0: And Rory, what's the significance of the timing of these new developments?
1: So it's no secret that the UAE and the vast majority of oil producers in the world are thinking about life after oil, and um, you see this with the Saudi uh, Saudi reforms, very considerable reforms that are going on, and you see it with the economic reforms that the UAE has been pursuing for the last sort of a half decade or even decade or so. Um, I mean the timing is significant because the oil prices remain relatively low seventy seventy five dollars a barrel down from $130, one hundred and thirty one hundred and thirty five at their peak. There is a need to stimulate the economy at this point in time, and think long before that last b- barrel of oil is pumped that um, that other industries are growing around that. The Emirati businessmen we spoke to today um, do describe you know relatively sluggish growth um, in certain sectors, although. Dubai and Abu Dhabi continue to grow relatively strongly, according to the IMF, 2-3% every year, which is quite high um, for a developed country. But but there is this feeling in the government that we get from the government is that um, they're investing quite heavily now to, uh, in the future.
0: The conflict in Syria has swung heavily in President Bashar al-Assad's favour. Airstrikes by Syria's ally Russia and support from thousands of fighters backed by Syria's other main ally, Iran, have helped the Syrian military root rebels across the country except in Idlib. If Idlib is taken by the government, it would leave the rebels with a few pockets of territory scattered across the country, effectively signaling their defeat. The UN says Idlib is home to some 2.9 million people, including 1 million children. Almost half of the civilians in Idlib come from other previously rebelled-held parts of Syria, from which they either fled or were evacuated. For the latest, we called our correspondent Richard Hall in Beirut, who told us why a military operation in Idlib could lead to a humanitarian catastrophe.
2: So humanitarian groups and the UN sort of ran out of ways to describe how bad it would be in Idlib if there was a government attack. The reason is because Idlib is very different to other areas that have been recaptured by the Syrian government, Um, primarily because of the number of vulnerable people, civilians, that that are living there at the moment. There are nearly nearly 3 million people living in Idlib province. Half of them have been displaced from other parts of the country, so they're already in an unstable environment. More than 200,000 people are living living in camps. Uh, Hospitals are struggling because of the sheer numbers of people. So all of this adds up. If you, if you add a military offensive into that, it just creates this horrible situation for people on the ground. And then there was the nature of the operation of the Syrian government was planning just in the areas they were planning to attack at first. It would have displaced around 900,000 people um, just, just by virtue of the Syrian government recapturing those areas. It would have sent people fleeing north, and, and it would have just created a, just a, a horrible, horrible situation. I think one UN official described it as it could have been one of the worst catastrophes of the, of the century.
0: And why does Idlib matter so much?
2: It matters for those reasons really, just because of the the sheer disaster that would have been created by by piece, by by this offensive. It would have been unlike anything we've seen in the civil war so far. And also because of the, the various parties involved. Um, Turkey has a major interest in, in keeping Idlib as it is. It doesn't want another wave of refugees coming towards its border. It already has around three and a half million living in Turkey. And it's also the last holdout of the revolution against Bashar al-Assad. It's the last stand of the revolution, if you will. So for that reason, it holds a lot of importance to the Syrian opposition and to many Syrians.
0: And now the um, the Turkish president, Rajab Tayyip Erdogan, along with his Russian counterpart, uh, Vladimir Putin, they've um, agreed to create a demilitarized buffer zone in Idlib. Could this avert um, the potential bloodshed and what did the leaders actually agree on in their meeting in Sochi this week?
2: Yeah, it's a, it's a good question. Um, I think in the short term, it definitely could have a, a bloodshed. That, that's what many people are saying today. Um, long term, it's, it's unclear. So what they actually agreed on was the creation of a, of a buffer zone uh, around 50 to 20 kilometers deep, in, around the front line that they'd live. So anywhere that the rebel, rebel-held territory faces government territory. And that will be patrolled, this, this buffer zone will be patrolled by Russian and Turkish troops. And as part of the deal, radical rebel groups who currently occupy those areas will be forced to withdraw. And any heavy weapons, tanks, rocket systems, mortars, will have to withdraw from that area. Now, it's unclear who gets to define what's a radical rebel group, but that will surely incu- include Hayat Tahrir al-Sham, al- which is the, the former al-Qaeda affiliate. So I think in, in the short term, it could definitely uh, avoid bloodshed. But I was speaking to people there last night and already some were expressing skepticism um, as to how long this could last. We've seen de-escalation deals before across the country and including in Idlib that have fallen apart and these areas have been retaken by the government. And Russia itself has reneged on these de-escalation deals in the past. So there was a mix of, of happiness, relief and and a, a caution from from people in Idlib last night
0: why are russia and turkey both so involved in the syrian conflict
2: uh, well turkey turkey was involved very early on um for obvious reasons it was opposed to bashar al-assad and it supported rebel groups uh, that wanted to over overthrow him and it it basically opened the borders and allowed anyone to cross into syria um with the eventual aim of of, of deposing him Things things turned a bit sour later on when uh, parts of the revolution became radicalised and that created problems for Turkey. And so now Turkey's role is is very much a a stabilisation role. It wants to keep things stable. It wants to stop more refugees coming to its border. For Russia, it's a it's a big geopolitical target. It, it didn't want to it didn't want Syria to fall into under the umbrella of the US. Um, if there was a pro-US uh, revolution in Syria, it would have fallen out of their orbit. So. They were keen to keep this this uh, key ally in, a, in a, an important strategic region for it. So for those reasons, those two have both played important roles on, on opposite sides.
0: Going back to your point about uh, speaking to people inside of Idlib, I mean, how are they reacting to the deal? Are they sceptical? Um, do they think that this deal is actually going to be held in place? Um, or are they actually happy and relieved about what's happened so far?
2: It was a mixture, actually. I I spoke to a couple of people last night immediately after the deal went out. And yeah, there was a mixture. It was relief. Um, There was was an immediate relief. Everyone I spoke to said, uh, at least we can get a few days rest now. Um, I spoke to a guy called Kasey Noor, who I've spoken to a a bunch of times before. And he said, um, at least now we can get our bearings. So it was kind of a a relief there, but there was a a caution. And uh, another guy I spoke to spoke about all the other times in the past that these deals had been made. And he said, we would be fools to trust anyone. They may have struck a deal, but we, we've been we've been through seven years of conflict. We've seen deals like this before. And for us to trust this uh, agreement between Turkey and Russia would make us foolish. So relief, but obviously a, a guarded skepticism in there and a, and a portion.
0: And what role has the US played in Idlib and in Syria as a whole?
2: And we a very small one, actually. That was perhaps one of the most striking things about last night's agreement, is that the U.S. played virtually no role. And I think that might have actually been the point. Um, Russia sees its relationship with Turkey as in- incredibly important for a number of reasons. But one of them is that Turkey is a NATO member. And Russia sees building ties with Ankara um, as weakening Turkey and the U.S., the relationship between Turkey and the U.S. And Turkey is very important for Russia's aims in Syria. It wants to rehabilitate the Assad government uh, with the international community, and Turkey is a very important part in that. Trump offered some, President Donald Trump offered some warnings early on about using chemical weapons and about, about the, 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 the severity of the campaign and urge restraint, but apart from that, it was largely absent. Um, in Syria as a whole, the US is very much focused on its own aims in, in small parts of Syria. It wants to Pressure Iran and stop Iran from having a free reign in in Syria, and to do that, and, and all its actions in Syria basically uh, are um, motivated by that aim at the moment.
0: Thanks to Rory Reynolds and Richard Hall. Thanks also to Kevin Jeffers for producing the show. Subscribe to Beyond the Headlines for free on Apple Podcasts and read more of our UAE and Syria coverage on our website, thenational.ae. I've been your host, Mina Al Join us again next week.